Father, our desire today is that what we have just sung as a song of prayer, a song of confidence, would be the reality of each and every soul here today. Father, that we would turn away from trusting in anything else and that we would only trust Christ. He alone can bring salvation. He alone can bring comfort. He alone can bring hope. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the ministry of the prophet Zephaniah. We thank You that he was a man who stood and proclaimed Your Word without compromise. He spoke an unpopular message, one that described the terrible consequences of sin, but yet also called people to find rescue in You. And Lord, our days today are very much like Zephaniah's day. Your people are barely recognized as Your people anymore. The world has infiltrated and corrupted your people. And while we desire and yearn for revival, Lord, we also see our own hearts are easily carried away into lesser things. And so, Lord, we need Zephaniah's message. We need your word today to be the hammer that breaks the hardness of our hearts, to till up our thorny ground so that you may sow blessing in your grace upon it. Father, work in our midst here today by your word. We pray this in Christ's precious name, pleading his blood. Amen. If you take your Bibles and turn with me to Zephaniah, Zephaniah chapter 2. We have finished, obviously, Zephaniah chapter 1, since we're moving on to Zephaniah chapter 2. And Zephaniah 1 was a rough chapter. Um, Zephaniah begins by calling out Judah for its idolatry. He doesn't soften the blow for the sins of God's own people. He points directly to their desire to seek hope in other things, and speaks of the disaster that God will bring upon them. That there is a day of the Lord that is coming that will completely consume all who persist in idolatry and fail to turn to the Lord. And then the rest of the passage he describes in vivid, terrifying, violent detail the sacrifice that that God is bringing. And it is not a sacrifice that propitiates or provides intercession on the behalf of those who have sinned, but rather those who have sinned are the sacrifice themselves. He describes at the end of chapter 1 that their blood will be spilt on the ground and their flesh will rot in the sun like dung. That this Great and terrible day of the Lord will come, it will come quickly, it will come assuredly, and it will consume all 
who do not turn to God. And so we come again recognizing that Zephaniah speaks such words, not because they're Zephaniah's words, not because Zephaniah is desiring to be harsh, not because he enjoys being a quote-unquote hellfire and brimstone preacher, but as we see several times in this passage, it is the word of the Lord. It is the word that God is saying. And so Zephaniah is a man standing, crying what God has said. You know, it's interesting, as our world particularly seems to push back against this type of preaching, this type of idea that we're going to talk about judgment and we're going to talk about these things. They say that's not for today. You realize when you read in the prophets, they were actually reticent to say these things. Jeremiah actually cries out and says, Every time I get up and preach, Lord, the word you give me is to say, cry out, violence and destruction. And people don't like to hear that. And yet Jeremiah was consumed by the work of the Spirit because he said if he wanted to stop speaking, God's word was, as it were, a fire in his bones. And he could not relent from speaking. Why does God bring such vivid descriptions of judgment on sin? Why does the New Testament and throughout the Scriptures describe God's wrath upon sin as an eternal, unquenchable fire that those who turn away from God, those who are not His people, will experience forever? And in our day and age that has, has lifted and exalted the love of God to a fault to diminish the reality that He is a God of justice and wrath, we hear that message and so immediately we have people in the world out there trying to soften that message, trying to say that the God of love would never do these things. But you've been with me as we've read through Zephaniah 1. This is your God. He does not bow down or kowtow or tolerate rebellion he brings swift and terrible judgment upon it now why are these descriptions here and the answer is what zephaniah is now going to turn to in these last three or these these last three verses of the first section the first three verses of chapter two as zephaniah is a prophet of wrath and rejoicing, we see him now saying, well, how should we respond to this? And what we're going to find, as Zephaniah points us to, is that we must respond not by running away from God, not from running away from the God of wrath, but running to Him in Christ for our only hope from His wrath. Look with me in Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 1. Now again, this is sort of on the, this is the end of the first section of Zephaniah's prophecy. And just a quick note, the ESV puts verse 4 with this group, but I, I think the translators made a mistake there in putting the paragraph there. I really think the first section ends at verse 3. Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 1. Gather together, yes, Gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day 
of the anger of the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do His just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. There are four things I want us to consider that Zephaniah calls us to do in this passage. And the first is that we must respond to God's wrath with evaluation. We must respond to God's wrath with evaluation, particularly evaluation of ourselves. Again, Zephaniah is drawing to a conclusion the terrors of God's wrath. And now he's saying, what do we do with this information? How do we respond to God's word? And he begins with these first words, gather together. He then affirms it, yes, and then repeats it, gather. There is a clear admonition here that Israel needs to come together as a people. Now, for what purpose? What purpose does he have for this. Well, I think it's important to note the word that's used here for gather. It's actually a word that's commonly used in the Old Testament to refer to gathering together straw or collecting straw. And so we actually see it uh, when Israel was making bricks and, and building um, things for Pharaoh. And, and there was this time where Pharaoh wanted to be harsher to Israel, so he was no longer allowing his soldiers to give them the straw, but Israel had to collect the straw themselves. They had to gather it together. That's the same idea here. And there's, there's two things that I think are emphasized with this term gather that would have immediately come to the minds of a Hebrew reading or hearing Zephaniah's prophecy. When he uses this word, the first is the very humbling act of gathering that it replies to and and implies. To get this straw, you have to get down. You have to do servant's work. This was not something that everyone in Israel would do. This was something that slaves did. That's why Israel was humbled to do those things in Egypt. And so now, this message gathered together is actually referring to the entire nation that they must come with an attitude of humility they're to recognize that what they are gathering together as they would gather straw is to gather something that is insignificant straw is of little use i was trying to look up um, this week how much it costs for a ton of straw and I heard, I saw different things. I saw one place that said it was like $300 for a ton of straw, and then I saw one place that said it was $32 for a ton of straw. That's a pretty big divergence. But regardless, a ton of straw is a lot of straw, right? It's pretty worthless. It's not very expensive. And so this gathering together, and particularly that the nation is the one that is gathering together, it speaks of the attitude of humility that they must have when they hear the words of God's judgment. We'll say more about this when Zephaniah specifically calls them to be humble. And then, what do you do with straw? Well, it can be used to, as the Israelites did, it can be used to fortify bricks, but you know what the primary use of straw was? To kindle fires. It's good kindling. Dry straw, it goes up like that. It 
creates a very hot flame and burns quickly, but if you get enough of it and you get the wood on top of it, it makes great kindling. And that reminds Israel of the fact that they, in their humility, because of their rebellion, are really nothing more than kindling for the fire of God's wrath. And so he says, gather together, gather with humility, gather to recognize what you are. Now, I think it's also important to note that this command is given for Israel to gather themselves and not to wait for God to gather them together. Because when God gathers together his people, it brings about severe consequences. Ezekiel speaks of this. In Ezekiel chapter 22, 17 through 22. And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, the house of Israel has become dross to me. All of them are bronze and tin and iron and lead in the furnace. They are dross of silver. Therefore, thus, thus says the Lord God, because you have all become dross, therefore, behold, I will what? Gather you into the midst of Jerusalem. As one gathers silver and bronze and iron and lead and tin into a furnace to blow fire on it in order to melt it. So I will gather you in my anger and in my wrath and I will put you in and melt you. I will gather you and blow on you with the fire of my wrath and you shall be melted in the midst of it. As silver is melted in a furnace, so you shall be melted in the midst of it. And you shall know that I am Yahweh, the Lord. I have poured out my wrath upon you. Three times God speaks of how He is going to gather the nation together. And He is going to place them into the furnace of His wrath for the purpose of refining his people, so that those who are not truly his people will be burned away, and the only thing that will be left is the value of those that are his genuine people the silver and the gold. Jesus speaks of this in a parable of the harvest on the last day. He says in Matthew 13 24 through 30, he put Another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, the weeds appeared also. And so the servants of the master of the house said, came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seeds in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, well then, do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no. Lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first. Bind them in bundles to be what? Burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. What Jesus says here helps us to understand 
somewhat of what Peter was discussing, that there will be in the last days false prophets that will arise up from where? Within you. And as he says in chapter 3 of 2 Peter, which we just finished looking at recently, he describes that there's this concern, why, Lord, haven't you come back? Why has it been at that time just a couple decades? But why now, as we look back thousands of years ago, thousands of years have gone by, why, Lord, haven't you come? And the answer is God is allowing his people to grow. Now, he allows the, the tares to grow up with them, but there will be a day where he will gather the tares away and burn them. And he describes this in Matthew chapter 25. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be what? Gathered all the nations. And He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on His left. Then the King will come, will say to those who are on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Hallelujah that God's people are guaranteed this hope from before time began. But then He will say to those who are on His left, Depart from Me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Zephaniah's call for Israel is for them to gather themselves rather than to allow the Lord to gather them. At that point, there is no turning back. He's calling them to evaluate themselves before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Before it comes suddenly bringing disaster. And so the message that Zephaniah gives, gather together, is given to God's people. And so it is necessary for us today, who are God's people in the church, to gather ourselves, to gather ourselves together and to evaluate our hearts, our minds, our souls, and the exertion of our strength. To evaluate our works, to determine do they align with allegiance to Christ or are we wolves in sheep's clothing? He calls Israel to root out the sin within them, lest the sin within them be found by Christ and they be condemned on the day when he gathers the nation to be judged. And so for us, the message, the warning is evaluate. Are you truly God's person? Scriptures tell us that we are to make our calling and election sure. Evaluation is something that is all over Scripture that we're called to do. And what Zephaniah does is he reminds us, don't fool yourself into thinking you're in the kingdom. We have a lot of people in a lot of churches today that want to fool themselves or convince themselves or lie to themselves that they're genuine believers. And on that day, God will see that they've grown up among the wheat, but He will know and they will be gathered and they will be destroyed. Is that you? 
Zephaniah again is calling to Israel. Today, he speaks to us. God speaks to us through his word, calling to the church. Gather together. And then God gives his assessment of Judah at the second phrase of verse 1. What does he say Israel is? They are a shameless nation. God gives his evaluation. And in fact, God is very clear here. He doesn't leave it for them to figure it out themselves. He puts his finger right on the problem and says, I'll give you my evaluation. You have no shame. Jeremiah's words are very similar to what Zephaniah is saying here. And if you remember, when we talked about the minor prophets in general, they tend to form or, or, or coalesce around Jeremiah's own prophecies. Look at what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah chapter 6. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Notice again what, what God is doing through Jeremiah's words. He's warning the nation of the consequences of their sin. Zephaniah is doing the same thing. But he says their ears are uncircumcised. They cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord is to them an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. Therefore, I am full of the wrath of the Lord. I am weary at holding it in. Pour it out upon the children in the streets and upon the gatherings of young men also. Both husband and wife shall be taken, the elderly and the very aged. Their houses shall be turned over to others, their fields and wives together. For I will stretch out my hand against the inhabitants of the land, declares the Lord. For from the least, I'm sorry, from the least to the greatest of them, everyone, is greedy for unjust gain. And from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of the people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. We have a church today that is doing this very thing, saying, peace, peace when what we need to hear is that our sins have brought us to the point where we should have no peace because there is no peace. We need to be disturbed about our sin. And so God makes this evaluation of Judah. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore they shall fall among those who fall. At the time that I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. We need to hear these words and let them echo in our minds. We need to truly evaluate our hearts. Are we like rebellious Israel? Are we lacking such shame that we will pretend 
on Sunday to be upstanding religious people and then the rest of the week go out and live a lie of a wicked life? Are we a people that have no shame? So when Zephaniah says, gather together, yes, gather together, he's calling them to respond. He does this so that they would evaluate themselves and make the right response before, verse 2, the day the decree takes effect. You know, this is, this is something that we can give thanks to the Lord that the decree has not taken effect yet. He is withholding His return for the purpose of adding to His people. You realize that? God still has people to save. And so the decree has not taken effect because He seeks to give that work its time. And so Zephaniah pulls upon that, as we should as well, God, Christ has not returned, so let me evaluate myself because the day is coming and when the day comes, comes, it will pass away like chaff. There will come upon us the burning anger of the Lord. There will come upon us the day of the anger of the Lord. I don't think we truly understand the significance of that phrase, the anger of the Lord. I think partially because we're so used to human anger. You know, I, I know when I was a kid, despite what you, know, you all may assume about me, I was not perfect. <laughs> I made mistakes. I did things. I angered my parents. And that was not a pleasant thing for me. But do you understand what the anger of the Almighty God is? He is the God who spoke our Son into existence. In our solar system, there is no greater natural power than the Son. It is an engine of constantly exploding thermonuclear devices. Its power is such that, that we, can, we, we have just now been able to barely brush the very atmosphere of the sun. Its heat is unimaginable to us. It's, think of it, the, the sun is, I don't know, a long way away from the earth, millions of miles away from the earth. And yet you can go out, not on a day-to-day -day like today when the clouds are out, but you can go out on a sunny day and you can put your face up towards the sun, close your eyes because you don't want to go blind, and what do you feel? Heat. You feel warmth. And that was created by God just speaking it into existence. He describes in what we've read in Jeremiah, what we've read in Ezekiel, that He is taking His wrath and He is pouring it out in anger on those who rebel against Him. So these words are harsh. They're terrifying. They're vivid. And God speaks this way 
to get you to evaluate yourself. And if you evaluate yourself and you look at your life and you see that it is one of rebellion, one of pushing against the Lord, one of not seeking Him, then what should you do? And frankly, for those who are doing this, the message is still the same. We respond to God's wrath by seeking Him. Look at verse 3. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land. Seek the Lord. The first indication of genuine change. If you want to know if your heart is being softened, if you want to know if the hard, fallow ground of your heart is being tilled up, the first thing you look for is a desire to seek the Lord. It's not an option here. Zephaniah does not come to Israel and say, it would be good if you sought the Lord. It's a good idea to do this. You'll be a really, a really much better citizen of society if you seek the Lord. No, seek the Lord. It's not an option. Now we have to recognize that left to ourselves, no one seeks the Lord, right? What does Paul say in Romans 3? It is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one, no one, no one seeks for God. No one. And so as Zephaniah issues this response, we have to humbly recognize our inability to do this apart from God's grace. And our God is gracious. He makes a promise in Jeremiah that He has plans for His people, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon Me and come and pray to Me, and I will hear you. This is a promise that God is making to His people. You, what? Will seek Me and find Me if you seek Me, when you seek Me with what? All. Your heart. Jeremiah is describing the new covenant promises that find their fulfillment in Christ. Christ comes to take those who would never turn to Christ and to enlighten them by the Spirit so that now we listen to this and frankly most of the world continues in a hardened heart. The word bounces off of it. It does not take root. But God in His grace, through the Spirit and through the work of the Word, as a hammer breaking up that ground, softens hearts so that we seek Him with all our heart. My prayer here to you today is that you would have the desire to seek the Lord, that you would want Him. I don't want you to pretend to want Him. That does no one any good. I don't want you to, to, to play at wanting Him. I want you to want Him from the depths of your soul. And those who seek Him genuinely, He promises that He loves them. He loves them. Those who seek Him and seek Him diligently, they find Him. Jesus makes this wonderful promise that 
all that the Father gives to him will, what? Come to him. And those who come to him, those who seek him, what is the promise? He will never cast you out. This is grace and joy balanced with the terrors of those who do not seek the Lord. There is hope. Seek him. Respond to God's wrath by seeking the God who is. Zephaniah calls on Israel, calls on Judah to seek the Lord, to return to Him. The rebuke given to Israel is that they are persisting in refusing to do this. And God is there saying, if you continue, this is the consequence. But if you return, if you seek Me, you will find Me. Israel here, Judah here is... Like the sheep of Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one of us to what? Our own way. Now how must we come in seeking the Lord? Look at what he says again at that second phrase in verse 3. Seek the Lord. Who are those who seek the Lord? They are those who are what? Humble. All you humble of the land. It is only those who are humble that are capable of seeking Him. Because otherwise, we will not seek Him. We will go our own way. We will hear and consider that the way of the Lord is not worthy of our trust and we will trust in ourselves. We will follow our own path and our path, the path that everyone is walking on, the path that is wide, it leads to what? destruction and that's where most people are because most people aren't humble if you're here to seek the Lord it begins with an attitude of humility seek the Lord all you humble of the land You know, it really takes humility to realize that you cannot find or enter the kingdom of heaven on your own. Every single man-made religion seeks to feed pride, to say to you, you can do it, to tell you that you with the American dream can pick yourself up by your bootstraps and save yourselves. And the message of the gospel begins with you recognizing you can't do it. Salvation begins with humility. Salvation begins with humility. Solomon gets to the heart of this in Proverbs chapter 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Boy, if, if we could just get this, our lives would be flourishing for the Lord, wouldn't they? The problem is, is that we don't get this. We're not humble. We tend to lean on whose understanding? Our own. We need to take not some of our ways, not most of our ways, not 99% of our ways. All of our ways need to be lived in acknowledgement to Him and that He will make our paths straight 
There's a principle here that if we continue in our own way of thinking and if we don't acknowledge God, our paths will not be straight. It will be a harder path of life to live. But if we acknowledge Him in every part, our path is straight. Here's the big one. Be not wise in whose eyes? Your own eyes. Boy. If I were, I'm not going to do this, but if I would ask for a raise of hands. If you were to evaluate your week this week, how many times were you wise in your own eyes? My hand would be up, and I think everyone's hand in here would be up. I mean, this means in the way that you interact with your wife or your husband. This means the way you interact with your children, your co-workers, your neighbors, your friends, your family. You know why there's such um, consternation around the Thanksgiving table? You know, they talk about it's Thanksgiving, but don't talk about religion and politics, right? You know why that causes such conflict? Because we're all wise in our own eyes. We all think we have the answer, and we think you need to know about it. Listen, the only thing, the only thing you need to tell other people about is that they need to repent and turn to Christ. Everything else is meaningless in comparison to that. And that conversation is not going to be without conflict. So don't, don't get away with thinking that, oh, well, that's all, everything will be hunky-dory when I tell people to repent. No. Because they're going to continue to be wise in your own eyes. But you just make sure that in your conversations, that in the way you talk to other people, in the way that you approach any subject, you're humble. And you're not wise in your own eyes. This is something that the Lord continues to work on my life with. My, my parents, my dad used to say I could argue with a fence post. I one time for like two and a half hours around a campfire with, with a, a, a friend of mine and his uncle, we spent two and a half hours arguing about whether or not if a tree falls in a forest and no one's around here, it doesn't make a sound. And I think I made really, really good points that it does not make a sound, depending on how you define sound. But anyways, we, that type of thing is just about me showing myself that I'm able to argue myself to be right. And that is the very definition of wisdom in our own eyes. Listen, I can be wrong 10 times to Sunday, but I'm not wrong about what God's Word clearly says. And that's where we need to find wisdom. Wisdom from above, not from our own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. And then here's the thing. When we do this, when we get over ourselves, you realize that there is a healing in your flesh and a refreshment to your bones. You know, when you get into these heated discussions, whether they be political or, or whatever they may be, and, and, and you ever come away from an, ar an argument or a discussion and you're just like, oh, you just feel it deep in your bones. Why is that? Because your wisdom is being questioned in your own eyes. But if we acknowledge the Lord in all our ways, if we turn away from evil, then... We can, someone can disagree with us and we can be okay with it. We can be okay with it. 
Because it's not about us. It's about acknowledging the Lord in all that we do. So we need to respond to God's wrath by seeking Him and seeking Him humbly. Thirdly, it is not just simply that we seek God, that we turn to Him and trust in Him, and then we go about our life and live it however we want to. We cannot say that we seek the Lord and then walk as though we're not seeking Him. That's incompatible. And so we need to thirdly respond to God's wrath with obedience. Notice what he says again in verse 3. Seek the Lord, all the humble of the land. So that's the first description of those who seek the Lord. And what's the second description? They are those who, what? Do His just commands. There's, There's no possibility that you can seek the Lord and be humble, but yet persist in not doing His just commands. That's incompatible. If you're going to seek the Lord, you're going to do His just commands. Now, I'm not saying you're going to do it perfectly. I'm not saying that, that you're going to reach some, some level of sinless perfection here on this earth, and we're all going to struggle with failing to keep God's commands. But if we don't seek to do them, then we're not seeking the Lord at all. In fact, humility can be summarized by the idea of doing God's just commands or carrying out His judgment. Humility means that I will lay down my ways, my desires, my things, my judgment, and submit my life to God's way. You know what they called in the very beginning of the church? You know what they called Christians? They were followers of what? The way. Because it wasn't just about praying a prayer and making a decision. It was about an entire life given to him. And so, if you're going to escape the decree of the Lord, the day of judgment, you must seek Him, you must come humbly, and you're seeking Him, and then you must obey Him. Lest we think that Zephaniah here is calling us to mere outward conformity, his requirement of humility is an inward trait, not an outward action. The humility that is inward produces outward obedience. Whole heart pursuit of God produces whole life conformity to His Word. You're not willing to keep one area for yourself. God says we need to love Him with all our hearts. So if we're loving Him with all our hearts, and that's where our desires are, truly focused on Him, then all of our actions will reflect our hearts, right? Because that's, that's, you act from your heart. You know that. It's impossible to act otherwise. You don't act against your heart. I mean, sometimes you do, but ultimately there's some level of heart desire that overwhelms another area where you don't do something. Like, for instance, you know, I don't like to do manual labor if I don't have to do it, but sometimes I have to do it because my desire for something would be worse if I didn't do that. I'm not making any sense, but, and it's never good to say that when I'm preaching, but in other words, what I'm trying to say is we ultimately do what we want to do because we love what we love. The 
And so that's why obedience is the outward evidence of a heart that loves God and not self. And then we see this command, seek, repeated twice. Seek righteousness, seek humility. To seek means that we are looking for something that we do not naturally possess. We do not naturally have them. And so there's a reality that we have to understand. We are not naturally righteous and we are not naturally humble. What does the Bible say about our righteousness? It is a filthy rag. So we need to find it someplace outside of ourselves. In fact, we read that in Romans chapter 3, verse 10. There is none righteous, no, not one. Righteousness is something that exists outside of ourselves, and it is baked into the very fabric of our hearts that we do not seek or have righteousness. The pride of his, the face of the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. We desire to live completely independently of him. We want our righteousness to be enough. But the reality is, no matter how much I want it, no matter how much I desire it, no matter how much I wish it, it's not true. My righteousness will never be enough. So our desire must be then to seek the Lord because His righteousness is enough. That we would be found in Him, not having a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. And when we look to Christ, when we seek Him, we are seeking true righteousness. And when we seek Him, we're seeking true humility. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. All right? How do we have the mind that Paul is going to tell the Philippians to have? We have to look to Christ. We have to seek Him. What did Christ do? Even though He was in the form of God, He didn't count that something to hold on to, but He emptied Himself. He took the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, He what? Humbled Himself. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see how Christ is the key to what Zephaniah is calling Judah to do. That's why the first call is to seek the Lord. Because when you seek Him, that's where you find righteousness. That's where you find humility. And that's where you find transformation to do His just commands. The final thing that we need to respond to God's wrath with is hope in Him. Respond to God's wrath with hope in Him. The call of Zephaniah to evaluation and clear sight of your sin, to respond with seeking Him and obedience to His Word, brings a final response, hope. When, go back today and read Zephaniah chapter 1. And it is, it is not a very hopeful passage, is it? Just, just the last verse. 
Last two verses. I will bring distress on mankind so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord in the fire of his jealousy. All the earth shall be consumed for he is a full and sudden end. He will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. That is not your best life now, is it? But Zephaniah's message, as stark and as jolting as those words are, is still a message of hope that if we seek the Lord, if we turn to Him, if we're humbled, and if we obey Him because our hearts want Him more than anything, look at the last phrase of verse 3. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Remember how I commented on the fearful phrase, the anger of the Lord? There is hope from that anger in Christ. Those who genuinely seek the Lord and exhibit that desire that they're genuinely seeking Him through their obedience, their humility, are guaranteed to be spared the wrath of God. Look at what Isaiah says. Isaiah 55, 6-7. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way. The unrighteous man, His thoughts, let Him return to the Lord that He may have compassion on Him. And to our God... For he will, what? Abundantly pardon. God in Hosea speaks of a day where he will fully, he, where when, Israel's peep, when Israel fully heeds Zephaniah's warnings, they will not know his wrath. They will only know his goodness. Hosea 3, 5, Afterward the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God, and David, their king, referring to Christ. And they shall come in the fear and fear to the Lord and to His goodness in the latter days. And Paul reminds the church in Thessalonica that they are not Saved for the wrath of God. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. You see how both of these things, faith and obedience, are connected. You turned to God and you served Him. And now you're waiting for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. For God has not destined us for wrath. Hallelujah! Those who are in Christ, those who have turned from their sin and have humbled themselves and come to Him, our destiny is not wrath. But rather we obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us 
so that whether we're awake or whether we're asleep, we might live with him. And then here is the kicker. Therefore, what are we supposed to do with each other? Encourage one another with these words. Build one another up just as you're doing. We shouldn't run from the wrath of God as a topic among the church. We should embrace it as a means of pointing us to the great salvation we have in Christ and be encouraged that this is not for us. And then we should tell the world around us that this is their destiny, but if they repent, if they turn to Christ, if they seek Him, then they too can be hidden on the day of God's wrath. So how are we to respond to God's wrath? Evaluate our hearts. Gather together. Seek the Lord genuinely. Obey His Word and hope in Christ. This is exactly what Josiah did with what we read in 2 Chronicles. When he heard the words of the Lord, he tore his clothes. He evaluated himself and he evaluated the nation and he recognized that great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out upon them because they had sinned. They had not kept the word of the Lord. And so what he decided to do was to seek the Lord. Seek Him to the point where he made a covenant with the Lord. To walk after Him. To seek Him to keep His commandments and His testimonies and His statutes with all His heart, all His soul, and to perform the words of the covenant that were written in the book. Seek the Lord. Obey Him. He took away the abominations from all the territory that belonged to the people of Israel. All His days they did not turn away from following the Lord, the God of their fathers. And that brought hope. Notice what God says to Josiah. Because your heart was tender, because your heart was tilled up, because your fallow ground was broken up, and when you, you're responded to that by, not by prideful defiance, but by what? Humility. Because you humbled yourself before God when you heard His words against this place and its inhabitants, and you have humbled yourself before me and have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. I will gather you to your fathers and you shall be gathered to your grave in what? In peace. For the Christian, you realize that all Christians are gathered to their graves in peace. There's a wonderful hope because we enter into the joy of the Lord. We're absent from the body, but present with Him. And that peace is found because we are not meant for God's wrath. Have you responded to God's wrath this way? This is the path to see God pour blessings upon His people. Yes, Zephaniah is a prophet of wrath, 
But isn't it great joy that we can be hidden on the day of the Lord's anger if we're found fully in Christ? This is how God breaks up the hard soil of our souls. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us, Lord, and we thank you for the abundance of your blessings in Christ. We thank you, Lord, that we can have hope from your wrath by seeking Christ, humbly coming before him, and in seeking him, our lives will reflect that in obeying his word and living and walking the way. Father, take your word, apply it to hearts and lives here today. We pray this in Christ.